Hello and welcome to our latest Beyond Brexit podcast. I'm Emily Kahn. We're here in April. Twice we have approached an exit day on the edge of our seats. Our previous podcast was supposed to be the last one in this series, in fact. But instead, we're once again grappling with new portmanteaus and resetting the clock to when the UK leaves the EU. Today, I'm joined by a familiar friend, Michael Moore, our senior political advisor and touring Brexit guide, and a newbie to our series, Caroline Turnbull-Hall, our master Brexit scenario planner. They're each joining from their home in different parts of the UK, where, because it's the Easter holidays, they're there with their children and we're hoping that nobody's going to be making a surprise appearance. We're going to take stock of the latest announcements from Europe and London, review the risks ahead and explore how businesses can re-gear for the flextension the UK has been granted. Thank you both for joining me. Before we get started, can I just check you can both hear me okay? Loudly and clearly from the southeast of Scotland. Very good. And uh, very clearly from the Fens. Super. So, Caroline, I'd like to come to you first, if I may. Um, You've had the unenviable task of keeping our scenarios and moments that matter guides for business up to date. Just fill us in on where things stand now. What's been agreed? So the European Council have offered us a flextension, um, a rather ghastly word, meaning an extension for as long as is necessary, but with um, a, a firm ending of the 31st of October this year. So unless the withdrawal agreement is is agreed before that time, we're committed to remaining in the EU until the the 31st of October. Okay. We can leave earlier, subject to ratification of the withdrawal agreement, in which case we will leave on the first day of the month following the the month in which there is ratification. Okay. So we do have a firm exit date, but some uncertainty around an actual exit date. Right. And Michael, I know you and I talked a number of times this week about how long a potential extension might be. And certainly we didn't have the date 31st of October in mind. Uh, The Prime Minister asked for the 30th of June and and there was a lot of talk about maybe a date even next year. Why have we ended up with the 31st of October? What are the different political forces that have brought us to that point? This has ended up being a compromise uh, between the governments uh, of the EU27, the other member states, who decided this uh, while the UK uh, sat outside the room, uh, in effect. They were balancing a number of things. Many, in fact, most wanted to avoid the costs of no deal. That is going to be disruptive, not just to the United Kingdom, but to the EU27 as well. They were also very keen to create some breathing space while Europe deals with other pressing matters, not least of which is the elections to the European Parliament, which will then be crucial to the ratification of the European Commission, the body of uh, people who run the European uh, Union day to day. They play a big role in that. There'll be a new commission in October they need time to be able to reflect on the outcome of the European Parliament elections and get the candidates, including a leader of the Commission, in place. And the third thing um, was uh, they they want to ensure that it's all done before that new European Commission takes office at the beginning of November. So that seems to have been the crucial thing, finally, on picking the 31st of October. Right, OK, that all makes sense. Um, Caroline, just just thinking then about moments that matter ahead, um, clearly, you know, 31st of October is now going to be a big date front of mind as businesses focus on how they adjust their plans. What are the other dates along the way that people need to be watching out for? I think the 
the biggest hurdle or the biggest state um, are the European elections. Um, the UK is eager to avoid holding these if at all possible, but that would mean that we'd have to have ratification of the withdrawal agreement by the 22nd of May, okay. uh, with the UK leaving the Union by the 30th of June. However, we are preparing in the UK to participate in these elections and there is legislation that's being put in place to set the date for the election. So I think the default is that we may well, with a, a 31st of October date, have to participate in the elections. And in fact, the council made it clear in their decision that if the UK doesn't hold these elections, uh, we will be leaving on the, on the 1st of June. Thanks, Caroline. So clearly um, some moments still in the near term for us to be keeping an eye on here in the UK. Michael, um, what are your thoughts on, on the immediate political developments that we might see after um, this extension has been granted in, in Parliament? There's a real danger here that the extension takes a lot of the political urgency out of the immediate parliamentary processes around the withdrawal treaty. Although there will be some interesting dynamics at play now amongst Brexiteers who see the danger that the longer this lasts, the greater the opportunity for people to change the nature of Brexit. Uh, and so perhaps some of those on the Conservative side of, of the House of Commons will begin to think, although they don't like the withdrawal treaty, it maybe should get their support. But there are so many bits of uh, political calculation going into the mix. I think for us, it's most straightforward to, to concentrate on, on two or three key things. The first of those is the withdrawal treaty. We've got ongoing negotiations uh, with the Labour Party. That's taken longer than many people expected, and that's been, broadly speaking, encouraging. The longer people talk, one hopes the greater the chance of agreement. But the big question would be, in return for what? What is Labour's price? Is it having a general election? Is it having a customs union as part of the deal? And would either of those elements undermine Conservative support that's already in the bank for the withdrawal treaty or create wider problems for the Prime Minister? If Labour don't support it, then we go down a second channel, the kind of quasi-binding route of some more indicative votes, but the government saying that it will accept and implement whatever the Houses of Parliament decides. That might offer the chance for the customs union to get over the line. It's of all the recent debates, it's the one that has seemed closest to getting a majority uh, in Parliament. Question though, how do you table those uh, motions and how would the different parties whip their votes? Would they get free votes? So we would get a properly independent view of what MPs think, or would it divide along party lines? There's the prospect therefore of course that after all of this extra effort we still end up with a withdrawal treaty being rejected and, and therefore to Caroline's point uh, we don't trigger any of these kind of interim exit points up until the end of October. Right alongside this and because of some of the things I just mentioned we have the risk of a conservative leadership contest. Technically quite remote because the process for a confidence motion in the Prime Minister as leader of the Conservative Party doesn't, uh, it can't happen until much later in the year. But if it is the case that lots of cabinet ministers or the, just the general 
uh, process of the, the discussions with Labour lead in a particular direction, then I think politics may intervene ahead of that process. And thirdly, um, there's this whole issue of do we get a general election or a referendum? Now, for a general election to be triggered requires a lot of MPs to vote for it that I don't think would necessarily wish to be part of it. Uh, this might be quite an awkward moment to meet your electorate, so to speak. The referendum issue, I still think is very challenging. There's numerous stages they've got to go through to get to the point where you've held it and its primary purpose for those who advocate it is to reverse Brexit, that you get the result that they, they are looking for. So um, these are serious possibilities, but I wouldn't yet put them into the great possibilities or high probability. Okay. Um, that's, I'm glad you picked up on the second referendum because you might have seen that I ran a, a poll on Twitter earlier this week to ask my followers which topics they'd most like us to cover on this podcast. And that was by a long stretch the topic that people wanted to hear more about. Um, so we've heard from you there about the political likelihood. Caroline, I'd just like to invite you to comment on the sort of technical likelihood. There's been a lot of talk about requiring a minimum of 22 weeks to run a proper referendum. And clearly, there's not many more than 22 weeks between now and the 31st of October. So just take us through kind of the timings and the sense of feasibility on whether or not it's technically possible within this full extension period. Yes, thanks, Emily. Um, it is a time-consuming process. Uh, I have seen an estimate of as little as 12 weeks um, quoted, but 22 weeks seems to be the sort of accepted wisdom. So counting from um, late April, um, that would take a referendum to early July or mid-September, both of which would be accommodated by an extension to 31st of October. There are quite a lot of steps that we'd have to get through uh, before the actual vote. Um, and it, an all-UK referendum is not something that we're particularly experienced at in the, in the UK. We've only had three since 1975. So the first step would be that the government would have to, to bring forward legislation, which would set the date, set out who's eligible to vote, the questions on which uh, which would be voted on, as well as the period for the campaign. Uh, that legislation would need to be drafted, debated through both houses. Now, as a, an indication, the legislation for the 2016 referendum took round about seven months, uh, which obviously we haven't got. But I have seen it estimated that the legislative stages could be completed in perhaps around about 11 weeks. Right, OK. And indeed, I mean, we've seen very recently Parliament has shown an ability to move quite quickly when it wants to. So maybe there's you know, some hope that it wouldn't take seven months this time around. I mean, that, that is true. And But I would just uh, highlight the particular role of the Electoral Commission who test the potential questions, make sure they're understood, that they don't mislead, they don't tend towards a particular outcome. They play a crucial role in this whole process. They don't choose the question, they don't say yes or no to the question, they, they offer advice, but 
in my experience, uh, both in Scotland, where uh, they were crucial to the choice for the referendum question then, and also more recently on the European one of three years ago, uh, nobody gainsays the advice. So uh, that's just another factor, and it would be highly sensitive, because the question you ask uh, will be critical to people uh, then you know, framing the campaigns around that. Okay. So let's say we get the legislation. What happens next, Caroline? Um, once once we have the legislation, um, the Electoral Commission will then nominate the lead campaign groups. Now there might be two or three groups, depending on what's actually on the on the voting paper. So the vote could be a binary vote: um, do you vote for deal or no deal? Or there could indeed be three options, which would be deal, no deal, or no Brexit. Um, if there are three options on the paper, there'll also have to be some consideration in the legislation of exactly how the result would be determined. Michael, can I just bring you in there? And you're, you know, I know you've put a lot of thought into those questions. Um, what's your reflection on two questions, three questions? How do you see that playing out? That will go right to the heart of the Electoral Commission uh, test because uh, introducing a preferential system uh, or a runoff system, which has been mooted. Uh, all of these are complex, which is not to say that, that they can't be used, but they would, their very complexity and the risk in the, the eyes of the, those who lose that says, well, actually, I came first until you allocated the second or third preferences. It's suddenly getting into a very arcane debate about, you know, who really won the referendum. Okay. And for that reason, I'm personally, and it's a personal opinion, quite sceptical about more than one question. Although, give her her due, there are senior former cabinet ministers like Justine Greening and others who are very, you know, logically arguing the case for it. Uh, but let's not underestimate just how challenging it would be to both the technical and the political aspects mm. of the campaign. So I'm getting the strong sense of, there from both of you that despite the fact that I'm sure we're all picking up on a groundswell of conversation, debate and, and support around the people's vote, clearly some very loud voices calling for it in Parliament and um, more widely across the media and social media, it's by no means straightforward and actually quite a lot would need to play out before that becomes a, a more likely possibility. I think that's right, Emily. And I think, of course, it's also important to remember that a second vote might not solve the deadlock. Um, and you could envisage a situation where after two votes that there would be a, a call for it to go to the best of three and we don't have the time. Yeah. Um, Michael, there's one other topic I just want to test with you because I, I walked in the building this morning and was almost immediately accosted by a colleague that said... Right, but no deal. What if what if there's a, a leadership contest and we end up with a with a pro Brexit Prime Minister? Could they just decide unilaterally that we're going to leave on the thirty first of October with no deal, and that's going to be the Brexit strategy from now on? Um, and I, I promised them I would ask you this morning. So, what do you think of that, Michael? It's a very fair question, and of course, whether to be a Conservative leadership. Uh, campaign, almost the first question that any contender would be asked is, how will you complete Brexit? Some suggest this is why there wasn't a more robust challenge to the Prime Minister last year. It was because nobody quite worked out their own answers to that. But for sure, a new Prime Minister might say, 
I've made it clear I'm opposed to this. I've got the backing of my party for my position, and therefore I reject this deal. We leave without one. Unless that Prime Minister has also had an election before doing that and has mm. got a majority to support them on that position, I think this particular parliament would fight back pretty vigorously. Uh, it's been touch and go at times, but they pulled off a very impressive trick uh, in the last few weeks where they passed legislation in the teeth of government opposition, which mandated the Prime Minister to do certain things. Now, irrespective of the issue of the day about the extension, which is now in a place, it was a kind of proof of concept, as one commentator put it. The Parliament has now shown it knows how to do this, and there's majorities in the Commons and the Lords. So a new Prime Minister might believe from their party they had a mandate to do this, might wish to do it, but I think they would really quickly find themselves up against Parliament battling to choose it. And that might, at that point, then trigger the election. OK. So... Could we say from that, and I'm sure a lot of businesses this morning will be breathing a sigh of relief that the immediate threat of no deal has gone away. Is, is no deal off the table then for now? Many businesses have been thinking that with the, the, this long extension that effectively it is off the table and they can breathe a sigh of relief. And, and they're well entitled to that because the short term worries about no deal and, and, and dare I say, the lack of general preparedness for it would have made it a very difficult thing to deal with right now. I don't believe it's completely off the table because even if we had a new Prime Minister who wished to, uh, who could overcome uh, Parliament or, or, or Parliament itself couldn't resolve this in October, we would still face the same risk. So downplayed, definitely, hopefully an alternative can come forward um, but here we sit uh, in April and we're still not entirely clear what that future direction of travel will be. So businesses need to be thinking very seriously about what Brexit might do to them, not necessarily just about a hard Brexit, no deal right now or, or in October, mm -hmm. but the, the next stage, what does the future arrangement look like with the EU? OK, yeah. And our head of Brexit, Andrew Gray, obviously all of us know very well, um, has commented in the press since the flexension was agreed about um, this being a moment that businesses need to re-gear, they need to use this time wisely. But recognising that this isn't just as simple as changing the end date of your contingency planning, you need to take a fresh look at it against what is now going to be a prevailing backdrop of uncertainty for some time to come. And I know a lot of our clients, and you know, Michael, you and I have talked about this many times before, have tried their very best to keep as many options open to them as possible. But there's only so long you can do that for before you just need to get on with running your business. And certainly for international businesses, the UK is just one market and there's other things going on around the world that they need to be grappling with. So there will be a strong temptation, I think, for, to put Brexit sort of on a back burner, as it were. What would your advice be to businesses who, who are of a mind to sort of take stock and take a fresh look at how they approach this, recognising that, you know, we're going to be in this period of uncertainty, not just for the next six months, but then into the future relationship negotiations thereafter, whilst the, the full detail of the future relationships negotiated? The tactical urgency of thinking about worrying about no deal has, has passed for now. And I think that's a perfectly legitimate thing to come off people's uh, priority list. But the longer term strategic challenges to business remain. Anybody who trades with the European Union, be that in services or goods, anybody who relies on 
our flow of work uh, workers from the EU mm-hmm. or highly skilled individuals who come from all parts of the EU, they will face a different world at the end of the Brexit process. Perhaps now not as dramatic as no deal right now would have been, but the future migration rules, the future trading rules will be very different to what we have just now. So a bit of introspection to understand the supply chains, the workforce requirements and the regulatory environment in which businesses operate is really, really valuable because as the shape of that future economic relationship with Europe becomes clearer, which will happen over the course of the next year, being ahead of the game, which this news extension allows you to be, will be a great place to be. Change is coming. It's not dramatic, bad change for many, as they saw it right now, but it's still coming and getting ahead of that and being thoughtful and thinking it through is a very sensible thing to do, seems to me. Okay. Caroline, I'd just maybe like to bring you in some top tips, if I may, because you obviously spend a lot of time keeping track of developments and there's still going to be a period of developments now during this flexension and indeed thereafter. What would your advice be to people who um, need to keep track of, of what's happening and, and build it into the plans in the way that Michael was just suggesting? Yes, I, th- I think it is important to remember that whilst we feel we have a, a, a bit of breathing space, um, things will continue to move and change um, and you've got to keep your eye on what is changing There are still a number of moving parts. Hopefully, we'll move into phase two for the negotiations around the future relationship. Um, It's likely that once we're we're into phase two, they're going to be negotiating rounds every month or so, uh, and different aspects will be discussed between the UK and the EU and agreed. So don't leave leave all your homework till the last minute. the final agreement is likely to be very lengthy, potentially a thousand pages or so. So make sure that as things change, you are keeping on top of developments, you know what the impact might be on your business, and you're aware of any potential unintended consequences. Okay, thank you. That's really sound advice. Um, we are nearly out of time here and I would just like to finish, if I may, with having a little bit of fun with you um, because, you know, we've all been working on this for a long time now and I know some people are experiencing a bit of Brexit fatigue. So, before we close, Flextension, new portmanteau we've all picked up in the last week. I'm going to ask you to Brexperts. Do you see what I did there? Um, what are your favourite portmanteaus or new new terms that you've heard during the Brexit debate in recent months that you'd like to share with listeners? Caroline, I'll come to you first. Well, we, we do seem to have developed a rather ridiculous new lexicon on the on the back of Brexit. Um, the three that I like are Brino, uh, which is Brexit in name only. Yeah. Brexchosis, um, which is the Brexit-related psychosis afflicting oh, I the country. Oh, have heard that one before. And I think my favourite, which which doesn't apply to any of the three of us on today, um, but that's Bob, uh, and that means board of Brexit. Okay, board of Brexit, right? Definitely, I'm definitely not Bob. No, Michael, how about you? <laughs> well, I, I was just thinking that that 
uh, Bob now can meet Brenda. There's a there's a kind of political match made in heaven. Brenda from Bristol, who famously <laughs> reacted very badly <laughs> to the general election of yes, 2017, quite. and Bob, um, who probably represents everything that the nation really wants. So Bob and Brenda, your new Brexit friends, will guide you through uh, the next year, no doubt. <laughs> very good. Well, perhaps I'll invite them to a future podcast, Michael. Um, thank you both very much. Lots for us all to reflect on as we think about... Um, moving forward with these Brexit negotiations and future-proving businesses for the next chapter. Um, we've talked throughout this process about how businesses are craving certainty, but it's clear that um, the events of the last few days have really brought home that uncertainty and disruption are here to stay. Um, I'd like to thank you listeners for joining us. I hope none of you are now one of Caroline's bobs. And if not, you can keep up with the latest Brexit developments and insights on our website, pwc.co.uk forward slash Brexit. Bye for now. Thank you.